The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. It's almost been a year to the day that we began the Gospel of Matthew here on Sunday mornings. And a year ago, we were in Matthew chapter 1, and the angel told Joseph to name his son Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. Here we are a year later in Matthew 26, and we learn unequivocally that that manger birth was always in the shadow of the cross. So here in Matthew 26, we see Jesus being prepared to do what his very name declared he was always sent to do, to save people from our sins. So in Matthew 26, we see the preparation of the Lamb of God. That's what I've titled this morning's sermon, The Preparation of the Lamb of God. And in this text, we'll see Jesus' incredible coordination and his willing substitutionary death to deal with our sins. Now, today's passage, just to make it easy to follow, really has four historical scenes, if you will, four scenes of the drama, so to speak. And then we're going to draw out four applications from today's passage as well. So now let's get right into the Word of God. This is scene one of the historical drama, and that's verses one through four of Matthew 26. And here we read the Jewish religious leaders plotting to kill Jesus. I want to point out a few things that were just read for us. Verse one, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, what sayings is that referring to? Well, Matthew 24 and 25, what's known as the Olivet Discourse, Jesus predicting the end of human history. Now notice verse 2, and you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. In other words, Jesus has just predicted the end of human history and then he predicts the end of his mission. And by the way, both predictions come true. So what Jesus predicts about his own end comes true. But notice in verse 2, he predicts it to the day. Jesus coordinates his own death purposefully to coincide with Passover. We'll say more on that as we go through the text. Now verses 3 through 5. The chief priests, the elders, they gather with Caiaphas. And notice verse 4, they're plotting to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. So their desire is to murder Jesus, but they need to do it by stealth because notice verse 5, they can't do it during the feast lest there be an uproar. Jesus is still popular with the people, and so they want to murder him privately because if it's seen publicly, there'll be a riot, and then Rome will come, and then the Jewish religious leaders will lose their power. Notice Jesus is coordinating his own death, and ironically, the person who said in chapter 25 that he would judge all humanity into sheep and goats is now going to submit himself to human judgment, which is always fallible. Now, here's something that I, that I fear. I wonder sometimes if we read a passage like this and say, well, this, this is so far away. I can't imagine why anyone would hate someone so much that they would kill him. There must be something weird about those people that surely isn't true of me. 
This, this week, there was a, a poll that came out, and these polls come out a lot. This one was in Newsweek, and it showed that 71% of college students would never consider dating or befriending someone who had differing political opinions than themselves. So just think of the, the moment we're in, that 71% of people are saying, if you don't vote the same way I do and hold the same politics I do, I won't even speak to you. To hate someone so much that you wish they weren't even in your life because they might say something that challenges you. Isn't that exactly why they hated Jesus? How dare he say something that would challenge my view of myself? I hate him so much for that. I want him out of my life. And as Jesus said in Matthew 5, to hate anyone so much that you want them out of your life is actually what murder is. Are there not people that hate Jesus that way today? How dare he say anything that challenges my construction of myself? And yet Jesus is coordinating his own death for the very people that hate him so deeply. While they're plotting evil, God is accomplishing good. And that moves us to the second scene in the drama. And that is a woman who anoints Jesus. And that begins in verse 6. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, and I need to bring out a couple things to you here just to help you understand what's going on historically. This is not the same anointing of the house of Simon the Pharisee where a woman anointed Jesus' feet. This is a different occasion than Luke 7. This is the occasion where a woman anoints Jesus' head. Now, let me bring something else to you. Matthew is now recording something that isn't happening in chronological sequence. Verses 1 through 4 are Tuesday of the Passover week. The Jewish religious leaders are plotting to murder Jesus. The next section we're about to read about, Judas betraying, is also the week of the Passover. And the final section of the four of the drama is Passover night. This occurrence happened the week before. So why would Jesus, or why would Matthew record it here thematically? How does it fit with these other four? Let's see. Verse 7, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment. It actually was worth a year's worth of income. It's that expensive. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. Verse 8, when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? This could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Now, the gospel authors are all perfectly intended by the Holy Spirit. They all write history perfectly. But they don't all emphasize the same details. John tells us explicitly that it was Judas who spoke. Mark says some people were concerned. Matthew says his disciples. Who's right? The answer? All of them. Think about in the Gospel of Matthew, sometimes when Peter speaks vocally what all the disciples were grumbling about. Judas here speaks vocally what sadly many of the disciples were grumbling about. Many of Jesus' 12 were concerned that this waste would be given to Jesus. Now notice verse 10. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. Did you catch that? What they called a waste, he called a beautiful thing. Verse 11. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. The logic of Jesus' answer is surely there's an ever-present need, but this is a precious and unique moment. 
And this moment is passing right in front of their eyes, though this is the fourth time he's predicted his death to them. Verse 12, in pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Why were heads anointed in the Old Testament? To prepare someone as king. Did you know the ointment that this woman is breaking over Jesus' head is the same ointment the wise men brought Jesus when he was born? It's myrrh. Because they're all recognizing him as king. But what kind of king is he? See, his kingdom is anointed by his death. See, verse 12, he's saying, what you're missing is what she's catching. She's anointed me to be buried. Because the king of kings commences his reign through death and his coronation occurs on the hill of Calvary and his purple robe covers a back eviscerated by flogging and his crown is one of thorns capping a body disfigured from human semblance. But these disciples are missing the moment right in front of their face. And so verse 13, truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, What this woman has done will also be told in memory of her. That phrase I spent the most time on maybe this week. How is the gospel completed by what this woman has done? Why is it that when we share the good news that God saves sinners, we should remember the anointing of Jesus for burial? And I couldn't find any commentator who helped me. (laughs) So I came up with my own. Here's, here's what I think is actually being taught to us by this very moment. Here's what this woman's act reminds us of. I think three things. Here's the first. It reminds us that nothing is more precious than Jesus, no matter how much it is valued here. It may be worth a year's worth of income. It's not more precious than Jesus. Number two, nothing is more urgent than Jesus. Many things press on us. The poor, many good things. Nothing is more urgent than Jesus. And here's the third thing I think her act reminds us of. No moment in history is more important than the cross. No moment in history is more important than the cross. What the disciples missed, but this woman realized, is this is the week through which human history changes. She has on her radar what all the rest of them miss. But why Does Matthew record what happened a week earlier in this section? Now let me answer that question I posed earlier. And I think it's because of verse 14. Now we're at scene number three. Scene number one, the Jewish religious leaders, they want to murder Jesus. Scene number two, a woman anoints Jesus. Scene number three, Judas betrays Jesus. Notice verse 14. Then, now it wasn't chronologically then, but thematically then. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? Now do you understand why Matthew records the anointing right before Judas' betrayal? Do you get it? Because that was the moment that was the straw that broke the camel's back. That's when Judas decided, I will not follow Jesus anymore. See, Judas made up his mind for the same reasons many people reject Jesus today. How dare Jesus correct me? I mean, 
I was following Jesus when it was going to be fruitful for me, when he was going to overtake politically the Roman oppressors and I was going to receive income from it. But now that he corrects me, I will stand up against him and I'll try to make something in spite of him, actually at his own cost. So look now in verse 15. Judas goes to these Jewish religious leaders who've been privately plotting, how can we murder Jesus without people knowing about it? He said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. This is an important amount of money in the Bible. Matthew will bring it up again in chapter 27, verses 9 through 10. But let me just give you a brief overview of why this amount of money is important. In Exodus 21, verse 32 If a person's slave was accidentally gored by an ox, you had to pay them 30 pieces of silver. It's just a really small amount for something that is seemingly unimportant. In Zechariah 11, when there is a prophecy of a rejected shepherd, the price to get that shepherd out of there is 30 pieces of silver. Let me go further. The woman's anointment, Remember, was worth a year's worth of wages. The 30 pieces of silver is worth four months of wages. This amount shows the value that Judas has put on getting rid of Jesus. And Matthew's placed it next to the woman. Which one of those two used money better? So verse 16, from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. Many of you know Matthew 26, but imagine it was your first time reading it today. At the end of verse 4, when the Jewish religious leaders are thinking, how can we murder Jesus without people knowing about it? Now we figure out how it's going to work. Here's the missing puzzle piece that will allow them to capture him by stealth and crucify him in public. And it's Judas. But that shockingly leads us to scene number 4. Jesus fulfills Passover. And this begins in verse 17. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? Now technically speaking in the Old Testament, Passover and unleavened bread were two distinct holidays. But by the time of Jesus, they had merged into one. They'd coalesced into one festival. So the Passover was one key night of the festival, but they were thought of together. Verse 18, Jesus said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, notice, my time is at hand. He's already told them, two days and I'll be crucified. Now it's here. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. In the first century, all Jews were required to go to Jerusalem to fulfill the Passover. So it was hard to find a place to have the meal because picture the whole country's there. But when you would have the meal there, you would always have it as a family. And almost always at the head of the table would be the father or the grandfather, some patriarch of the family. But remember who Jesus has already said his brothers and mother are. They're those who do the will of the father. So he'll have this meal with his family. And yet one person there will actually be there to destroy him. So verse 20, when it was evening, Jesus reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And that would have dropped like a bomb. 
Because though this is his fourth prediction of his crucifixion, he had never revealed that one of the very 12 would betray him towards his death. Verse 22, and they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. It appears that the disciples didn't catch the image that he was telling them would reveal the betrayer. Verse 24, the son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. And notice the sobriety of this phrase. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Do you know what that makes clear? It makes clear that rejecting Jesus permanently leads to such eternal damnation that it would be better for you to have never existed. Meaning that what comes after life for those who sadly reject Jesus is so eternally horrendous that it would be better to have never existed at all. Verse 25, Judas who would betray him answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, you've said so. Isn't that an amazing interchange? After saying someone's going to betray him, everybody's saying, is it me? Is it me? Is it me? But then Judas says, is it me? Jesus says, your words have said so. What do you think the tone was in the way Judas asked that question? Sincere? Insincere? Here's what I think is striking. One author, I think, put it perfectly. Judas's words betray his flagrantly deceptive and hypocritical heart. When you read it, I think it's okay to read it this way. Oh, do you think it's me? (laughs) Yeah, it's you. So Jesus coordinates his own death. The puzzle piece is Judas, and yet Jesus has coordinated willingly out of love. Because the Passover is being fulfilled by now the perfect lamb. So look in verse 26. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. No one would have ever thought of Passover that way until Jesus said it. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You and I don't live in the Old Testament era, but do you remember the Old Testament well enough? What always happens when there's a covenant? Think of when God made a covenant with Abraham and all of the animals were cut in half and God walked down the middle of it to say he would keep his covenant. There's always a sacrifice. Who's the sacrifice here? This is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. This is a covenant and I'm the sacrifice. Why? Which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. But not only is there a sacrifice through a substitute, there's a promise of a reunion in the future. Verse 29. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now they have to know the full fulfillment of the kingdom is future. But the sacrifice that makes it possible is at the table because the substitute is the lamb. And that's why Jesus chose Passover. I want to remind you what Passover is. If you're not as familiar, in Exodus 12, God's people are in slavery in Egypt. 
And there have been nine plagues that were all directed at the Egyptians. But the tenth plague is directed at everyone. The reason it's directed at everyone, we read in Ezekiel, when Ezekiel reveals that even the Israelites have been worshiping Egyptian pagan gods. The tenth plague is issued at everyone because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So God must, as a holy and just judge, be willing to mete out judgment against every single sinner, and that includes the Israelites. But not only is God just, God is merciful. And so God designs a plan through which people can avoid the judgment they deserve and their judgment can be passed over. And that plan is salvation through a substitute. Now the substitute in Exodus 12 is a perfect lamb. They have to find a lamb without spot, a mature one-year-old lamb. They have to examine that lamb for four days and find it with no fault. By the way, a pattern we'll see resuming here in Matthew 26 and 27. After they find that that lamb has had no fault, they're to kill the lamb and put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. And when the angel of death comes to give the wages of sin, which is death, God will pass over each home that has the blood of the lamb substituting in the place of their own deserved punishment. Now, how could an animal ever truly satisfy the wages of our sin? The answer is it can't. Which is why Hebrews tells us that there was really only one purpose of these animals, and it was to point to the perfect spotless lamb. Paul makes it unambiguous for us. In 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, he writes, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. See, here in Matthew 26, the lamb is not on the table. The lamb is at the table because the lamb is the one John said, Behold, Jesus, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The question for the Israelites is still the question for you. Let me ask you this morning, is his blood applied to you? Will God pass over your sin? Only one substitute can shield you from the wrath we deserve. Let me pause on this for a moment, though, because many Americans today think, well, I don't need to be forgiven. I mean, I'm a good person. Why are you saying all these scary things about me being bad and needing to be judged? That doesn't sound very American. I'm a great person. I don't need to be forgiven. Let's pause on this for a second. Verse 29, Jesus said he was going to give his life for the forgiveness of sins. Who is the one who's forgiven? God. Meaning, who's the one who's been sinned against? God. Imagine you're raising children and your child is at an age where they're just acting out in anger. And so one day they get very upset and they take a rock and they're just mad and they want to express their anger to the world. And so they take the rock and they throw it through your neighbor's window. And imagine the way you deal with that is you get in the car and you drive 13 minutes to another neighborhood. You knock on a random door and say, we just want to apologize because we did something bad. Why would you be seeking forgiveness from the person you didn't sin against? Or imagine even worse, you sit little Jimmy down in his bedroom and you say, Jimmy, all that matters is that you can forgive yourself. Think of how ridiculous that is. All that matters 
is that you're forgiven by the person you wronged. So if we need to be forgiven, we need to seek it from the one we've wronged, the one person we've ultimately wronged, as David said so well, against thee and thee only have I said. Yes, we are sinners, and only one person really is the person who can forgive us. Let's go further. What has he forgiven us from? Sins. Sins means that we have done something truly wrong. And as the wrong person, the person who did the wrong, we don't get to define how bad the wrong was. Have you ever noticed in a relationship when two people are at odds with each other? And the one person's really hurt by what the other person does. But then the person who did the wrong says, well, it's really not that big of a deal. I mean, you're just overreacting. Think of how we treat God that way in our culture today. God, you're just overreacting. I mean, the stuff that you think is bad, it's not that bad. Well, this week I was reading Romans 1, verse 32. It talks about the wrath of God. And at the climactic verse, in verse 32, it says, Those who do these things deserve to die. And not only those who do them, but those who approve of them. Do we think that, though? Do we really think, you know, before a holy God, I deserve wrath? If we don't realize that, we will not realize how amazing the third thing about forgiveness is. Not only who we've wronged, and not only what we've done, but how it gets paid. The shock of the gospel is that God wants to forgive, and he chooses to absorb the debt on himself. So that through the substitute and the substitute's suffering, we can be forgiven. This is how all forgiveness works, by the way. Any relationship that has a breach because of wrong that's been done, the only way for reconciliation to happen is that the one who's been wrong refuses to make the person who wronged them pay for what they've done, but absorbs the cost of it themselves. They know that because this person has hurt me, it will hurt for me. It will suffer. I will suffer. And yet, I'll absorb it and I'll refuse to make them pay. Didn't you notice in today's text who was coordinating all of this? So now we're ready for four applications and they're on your bulletin hopefully this morning. Having seen these four scenes of the historical drama, let's draw out four applications. Number one. God is sovereign over evil and ordains his good purpose. The Jewish religious leaders were trying to murder Jesus. Judas is trying to betray Jesus. But what's God doing? Saving sinners. The next time in your life you're wondering, how is Romans 8.28 true? How is it true that God can work all things together for good? Remember the cross. (laughs) Remember what Peter said in Acts 2. That what God had foredained from eternity past, wicked men accomplished, and yet God did it to save. Let us consider how when we remember that God uses all evil for his good purpose, how that can propel our perseverance in a world of struggle. See, the good news of the gospel is not only the lamb, the substitute who's come to do good where people did evil, Not only is he the lamb led to slaughter, but he's also the resurrection and the life. That means that the evil things that happen are never the end of the story. 
They're just the peak of the struggle. But the resurrection will overcome all evil. Be encouraged. All the wickedness that's happening, God will use for good. Now number two on your hand up. Jesus died voluntarily for the express purpose of dying to accomplish for many the forgiveness of sins. Jesus predicted and predicted and predicted his death, and here he predicted it within two days. Last night we had an interesting experience as a family. It was so warm yesterday that we thought, man, this is a great day to get out and just do some stuff. So about five o'clock, we got the kids together got our two strollers, and let's go for a walk. Let's do some errands and just get out and enjoy it. And it was great until the way back. (laughs) We walked about two and a half miles or so from home, and on our way back, suddenly a monsoon of rain came down. I mean, it was incredible. And we have our kids, and we can't see anything. We're throwing them in the stroller and just trying to make our way through it. And we started to run, and we found a parking garage, and we got in that overhang. And I left the family there and said, well, I guess I'll run home and I'll get the car and I'll come back. And so I get out and it's raining so hard, it's pushing my contact lenses off my eyes. And I run all the rest of the way home and I'm thinking, you know, all the stupid runs I've done in the morning, maybe they'll finally count for something today. And so I'm running all the way home, get the car, make it back. We're just dripping wet, get everybody in there, drive home. Afterwards, what I thought was, had I known it was going to be like that, I would have never left the house. Now think of this today, brothers and sisters. Jesus knew the day he was going to die. He knew the way he was going to die. And he chose to do it. If we knew the day we were going to die, we couldn't live. If we knew the way we were going to die, like this, we would try to end it earlier. Jesus faces the hill of Calvary knowing from a child what he came to do. Imagine him at 12 years old telling his mom and dad, don't you know, I'm here to be about my father's business, which is what? To die to save us from our sins. Don't let anyone ever tell you that the cross was divine child abuse. This is the child who chose to go to the cross. And don't let anyone ever tell you that the cross was just an example to be nice. No, the cross is necessary so that our sins can be paid. And the reason that's such good news is because when you've wronged someone else and there's this unspoken tension, you never feel harmony with them. But when it's been brought out into the public and it's been dealt with, then you can be close. Jesus has brought out into the public what was between us And God, and he did it for the forgiveness of our sins. Number three on your handout. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Today we read together Isaiah 53. Isn't it amazing how many centuries that was written before Jesus fulfilled it? Phrase by phrase, numbered among the transgressors, led like a lamb who is silent, open not his mouth. What an amazing promise. If you love promises fulfilled in Jesus, remember he will still keep fulfilling them. Hebrews 13.5, he will never leave us or forsake us. Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, how will he not also graciously give us all good things? See, it's easy when you're in the moment to forget that God is weaving a tapestry of his purpose together. 
On Friday, Hunter and Caleb and I went out into the neighborhood and we were able to just talk with people about the Lord and follow up with some people our church has had connections with. And one of the guys asked a hard question that I've been asked before by others. He said, it's, it's hard to make sense of what Jesus is doing because it doesn't seem like what preceded him in the Old Testament is connected to what he is doing afterwards. But maybe this illustration will help you. Imagine you grow up... Uh, on a farm, maybe a couple hundred years ago, before there's Google Maps. (laughs) And on this farm in your backyard, there's a creek. And you love this creek, and you spend time with this creek, and in your mind, this creek is everything. But one day as you get older, you're able to travel, and you drive, and you realize that that creek connects to all these other creeks, and then it joins, and it makes the Mississippi River. (laughs) There are all these things in the Old Testament that as you're reading them, you're like, I don't understand why they're killing sheep, and I don't understand why they're putting them on the doorpost. I don't understand what's going on here. See, those are all the creeks, and they all converge in Christ. All the promises God has made are fulfilled with finality, and the guarantee of them is that Jesus came, and he died, and he rose. You can trust him to continue to fulfill his word. Number four, salvation from our sin That forgiveness that we need, that eternal relationship that we need, has been accomplished by Jesus alone. Therefore, it is received by trusting Jesus alone. If you're reading this passage and you're thinking, you know, um, I think that I could do some good things and maybe I can kind of make it to heaven a little bit because of my own contributions. You think you're a stronger Christian than Peter? Because in the next five verses, he betrays Jesus. In fact, the 12 who are there are all collectively thinking through Judas, what a waste to anoint Jesus. (laughs) And by the end of the chapter, Judas, of course, does betray Jesus. Look, if we put our hope in humanity, we have no hope. There is only one source of salvation, and it's when God came down to do what we never could. And it is vital that your trust is in Jesus Christ alone. This week I was thinking about subtle ways that we start to think that our trust shouldn't be solely in Jesus. Have you ever heard somebody say, you know, that person has done so many bad things, I don't think God could save them. Do you know what that reveals? They don't understand how the gospel works at all. And I'm using the terms carefully, at all. All. If you think you can outsend the cross, you don't understand what the cross is. <laughs> the cross is the only hope for salvation for any sinner. So if you think someone's beyond saving, that must think, mean that you think you're partly deserving of salvation. That's not how salvation works. Salvation works this way. We deserve suffering and judgment because we put ourselves in God's place. We acted like we are sovereign. But we can be saved because God put himself in our place and bore our sin on that cross. See, salvation occurs because of the great exchange. Didn't we read earlier, all we like sheep, every one of us has gone astray? But then the good news, a couple of verses later, but the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, we can be cleaned because the Passover lamb was slain. Honestly, this morning, if Jesus was to say to us, one of you will fail me, we don't need to ask 
Is it I? The answer is, it's all of us. And yet the good news of the gospel is Jesus is in such sovereign control that he coordinates the day of his death to the day of Passover. Because all of God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus. And so the shadow that hung over the manger is finished by the baby who lived perfectly and grew to be the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Let's rejoice in him in prayer this morning. Father God, I thank you so much, Lord, that Jesus chose to go to Calvary. And I thank you that scripture tells us that the motivating factor was love. We read in the Bible, greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Thank you, Lord, that Jesus Christ chose to give his life for sinners who don't deserve his life. But he did so out of compassionate love. And that love, Lord, shows that you are just, you will judge sin, but you are also merciful. You've provided a substitute in our place. And therefore, it is only through Jesus Christ, the body that was broken, the blood that was spilt, and the promise that is given that we can find salvation. Lord, if anyone here this morning doesn't know with certainty that they can have a relationship with God, help them to realize that no one is too sinful, but also no one is small in sin in such a way that they don't need Jesus. So may we all come to him in faith. But because of the fact that Jesus did prepare himself for the cross, Remind us, Lord, that you will continue to keep your promises. That you will not fail us. That you have fulfilled what you've said and you will continue to. So may we be like the woman in this passage who understood that nothing is more precious than Jesus. No task is more urgent than worshiping Jesus. And no moment is as important as the cross. In Christ I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.